we've been looking at Messianic Psalm, and uh, today we'll see Psalm 41. Psalm 41, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him and protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said to the Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say to me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him and he will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, my, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, this psalm is uh, known as a betrayal psalm. Uh, see the imagery in verse 9, lifted up his heel. Uh, has the imagery of someone raising the heel up as if to crush a worm or an insect. Uh, if you would, this is the uh, uh, you know, biblical equivalent of U2 Brutus. You know, the famous, the supposedly last words of Julius Caesar, the dictator of Rome. So what is betrayal? Now, that's the question we would ask. What's betrayal? Anything that we do maliciously or intent, you know, with an intention to hurt someone by breaking the trust. Now, that could be a lie when you lie against someone. Uh, it could be uh, a gossip. It could be uh, when you uh, cheat someone for something or on something. Uh, you hurt intent, uh, intently. I mean, the list goes on. If you humiliate, the list goes on. Now, when you read the psalm, uh, one of the things that we start to think, hey, that psalm is about me. I'm the one who gets lied to and humiliated and, you know, it's about me. But before we start to go down that self-indulged uh, pity party, I, I want to bring to our attention at least two different ways that we can look at this, that it would pierce our soul. The first question we need to ask ourselves is, have we been that close friend to someone we betrayed, that we betrayed? Have we been the betrayer? True, we've been betrayed, but have I betrayed? And I guess the second question we need to ask is, our closest friend, our Lord Jesus Christ, how many times have I betrayed him? Intentionally, uh, not intentionally, in the choices that I make, the priorities. And so is the psalm about us? Absolutely. 
we'll find our name on both sides. We've been betrayed and we betray. And so I think we, as we read the psalm, we have to take the lessons that we can apply to ourselves. The, the key word, if you word, is trust. And how do I trust? How do I apply the, the principles of the psalm to ourselves is the question that we will ask ourselves. And, and we will get this as we go through the psalm. Um, I'm not sure how many of you receive Mark uh, Jank's letter. Uh, last week, I read this letter. Those of us who don't know who Marg is, Marg is a missionary who's been working with her husband, who's now since passed, for the past 50 years in Venezuela among the Yanomano tribe. 50 years. And if you know about her, you know that she is suffering from cancer and her doctor has just let her go for this, just this last time. And she doesn't know how many more days she's got and she's going to come back. Uh, But even in that last few days of our life, she wants to go serve and complete the work. So what she did in that letter, she says, she called everybody to just tell them three things. Three things. One is... uh, just going through briefly the history of the, her experience and her husband's experience, Wally, for the past 50 years. And also then to say her health condition, that you know, she may not be there for too long. And also to say that because she's got so few days, she's going to be tied up trying to do this translation work of translating the Bible into Yanomano and to complete that work before you know, the time's up. And so if she really needs to be met with, they'll have to come and meet. Uh, You know, go out of the way to do that. But I want to read in her words what happened. I wanted them to know that I may not have always uh, be accessible. I wanted them to know that I might not not always be very accessible uh, because of hiding out with my computer and working on Bible lessons and that if they ever wanted to talk to me, we'd have to make sure it happened. Apart from the fact that someone jumped up at the end and said he wanted to know what I was going to leave them. It all went very smoothly. We talked about it later, and he and his friend said things like, it's nice that you're leaving us with a Bible translated, but when we run out of Bibles, how are we going to make new ones if you don't leave your computer? And what about those pictures you took of us back then so that you could show them to your supporting churches and get money out of them. They sent you money to buy food, but you never bought us any. Maybe you you could leave us some food. I explained that apart from the one or two times of famine they had, no one was sending money to buy them food, but the money they did send, we bought medical supplies and those flights back and forth to the hospitals, all the medicines, all the flight back. They acknowledged that I had been that what I said was true and eventually smiled again and said maybe they shouldn't have spoken like they did. It was disconcerting to say the least. I suspect that their minds had been poisoned. And the email goes on. 50 years of selfless work. She's about to die. And the human attitude is what are you going to leave us? Your computer? Some more money? Talk about betrayal. Deception. I'm not sure if um, I'm speaking to you and you understand. And you count yourself where you, where you stand. But 
the way the psalm ends, the end of the psalm, the psalm ends with trusting in the Lord and a doxology, a praise to the Lord. And so when you read the psalm, you have to ask yourself, how can the psalmist, we know it's David, how can David end that way? And, um, and if, if, if there's a lesson to be learned, that is something I want to take, take away. You see, uh, what David is saying, at the end of it all, his faith was not shaken, but was strengthened. It feels like a, a new line for your James Bond movie. Strengthened, not shaken. <laughs> That's what the psalmist's experience was. And so... There is something for us is what I wanted to say. This is a messianic psalm, right? We know um, as we uh, start to read John chapter 13, we read the proceedings of what's happening, what we have come to know or call the Last Supper. In fact, it's not the Last Supper. There is another supper waiting for us, the marriage feast. And then again, that's a feast. And, and, And so at that point, the Lord actually applies this verse, the verse in nine, uh, 9, verse 9, he says, he quotes it. And what he's doing is, he's, he's applying to himself the experience of David to himself. That he was betrayed. In, in John chapter 13, verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know who I've chosen. But, the, but that the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. God, the Lord's saying, no surprise. Hey, that's not an oops moment. I know what I'm doing. He is keeping us, um, he's letting us know there's no change in game plan. You know, the choices of man, the sin of man is not, he's not sitting there, now I have to change my project plan. I know about it, he says. But in the light of how the Lord applies this to himself, and I read the psalm, I can take courage that he was where I was. I'm not sure if you heard of that song by Graham Kendrick. Uh, We used to sing that, and I'm going to read that out to you. Uh, I know you don't want me to sing, but I'll read it out for you. Okay? Um, He felt what I feel. He walked where I walk, he stood where I stood, he felt what I feel, he understands. He knows my frailty, shared my humanity, tempted in every way, yet without sin. God with us, so close to us, God with us, Emmanuel. One of a hated race, stung by the prejudice, suffering injustice, yet he forgives, wept wept for my wasted years, paid for my wickedness. He died in my place that I might live. God with us, so close to us, God with us, Emmanuel. How can you not fall in love with a God who knows us so intimately? Our God, if you would, experienced betrayal. And as we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 3, he was despised and rejected of men, acquainted with sorrows. One as from whom we hid our faces. Despised of men, we esteemed him not. And so when I get to Hebrews and I say that we... uh, 
and that we have a high priest who can empathize with the feelings of my infirmities. The Hebrews puts it in double negatives. It's more powerful in Greek. That's the God. That whatever our experiences this morning about, you know, be feeling left out, uh, broken trust, I want us to know that this psalm is something for us. You know, the context of the psalm is, um, as we read, you know, from verse 4 down, we see the psalmist is laid up with some kind of sickness. Uh, they think that he might even die. So his, his enemies actually come and act like a friend, and they want to know what's happening to him. They just want to know, so, you know, they want to know when he's going to die, not for any, any good. Aristotle said it so well. It says, I know my friend when he says, uh, be it well for you, he says it for my sake. You know what's he, what, what he's saying? He says, if I go to my friend and I say, hey, I hope it's okay with you, I'm saying that so that it's okay with him for his sake, not because it's going to benefit me. That's my true friend. And yet David experiences his close friend who wants to destroy him, lifts up his heel, as it were, to to crush him. And uh, the Bible scholars would say that the time when David wrote this was a time when Ahithophel, the counselor, David's counselor, turned against him. He allied himself with Absalom and uh, gave counsel against David. And so the prayer, therefore, is so that the counsel of Ahithophel would fail. Oh, that, that's what uh, that, that's probably the likely situation of the context. Uh, it doesn't tell us exactly. Now, based on what we're looking at, there are three parts to the psalm. I want to uh, title these three parts from verse 1 to verse 3. I want to call it our stand in grace. Our stand in grace. And then from verse 4 to verse 10, I want to call it our supplication in grace. And then from 11 to 13, I want to call it our song of grace. A stand in grace, supplication for grace, and song of grace. Uh, I want to go through each of these three parts real quickly. Uh, in some of your superscription of your psalm, just above the psalm, you have that phrase, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. The, when we read the psalm, we realize the psalmist is coming. He's standing in the fact that God would be gracious to him. It's in, that's a stand. Uh, he realizes that in his context, his circumstance, his conflict, that what he needs at that point is grace, and he remembers that. And he lists seven things. He says, the Lord delivers him, the Lord protects him, the Lord keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. Uh, he is not given up to the uh, to the will of the enemies, the Lord sustains him in sickness, and the Lord restores him back to full health. So the question then is, as we look at that first phase, blessed is the one who considers the poor, the psalmist is telling us, what is our response to grace? We have received grace, what is our response? We, might, we must not just be grace receivers, but we must also be grace givers, and that's a biblical truth. You see, the prayer that the Lord teaches, that's what he says, doesn't it? Forgive us our sins as we forgive theirs. 
that we who have experienced grace will continue to, to give that grace. That's why Peter was said, forgive 70 times 7, which means forgiveness, showing grace without count. Keeping no track. Because if God had kept track, where would we be? And he says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. A grace has an expectation that it must be imitated. Grace has an expectation that it must be imitated. But I also want you to see when David, he doesn't have a victim mentality. You know what I mean by that? I want you to look at the previous Psalm. Psalm 40 verse 17 ends by saying that I'm poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks about me. Now, thinking about Psalm, I want you to understand each of the Psalm is individual like a Psalter, like a poem. They're not chapters. That's why we don't say Psalm chapter 41. Psalm 40, Psalm 41. They're not, uh, 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 they're not uh, uh, chronological, but they're sequential. You see, so in book one of the psalm, we find 40, Psalm 40 and Psalm 41 together. And now what I mean by saying there's no uh, victim mentality is, is just this, saying that David is not saying, I'm poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks about me. And then he comes to Psalm 41. He does not say, hey, I'm the one who's poor and needy. I can't be thinking about a poor person. He doesn't say that. There's no poverty of his mind. And to think that we have received grace, we've often made it about ourselves. And that, that's, that's, that's something where we need correction on. That we don't hold on to grace for ourselves. That if God has thought about us when we are poor and needy, that we will in turn think of those who are poor and that we will consider the poor. This Friday meetings, we've been uh, looking at the parables I think it was two weeks ago, we looked at how um, the, the unfaithful steward of how we need to deal with uh, money. And Luke chapter 16 and verse 14, this is what it says, Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees stand there and they ridicule Jesus. They, 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 they can't believe that Jesus is for real. Really, you said that because they were thinking that if I have money, if God has blessed me with money, that's because he's happy with me and that I need to use it for myself. And Jesus is saying, no, money is a resource. That you be a good steward. That you'd use it in such a way that you don't consume it on yourself, but that you would consider the poor that it would make for eternal difference. Considering the poor. Consider the poor. Liberality is biblical because we have received grace liberally and freely that we would be liberal ourselves. Remember Judas? He was a thief. Money was an issue with Judas. True, we often say that he was patriotic and, and that his idea of the Messiah did not gel and so therefore he betrayed. But that's not what the Bible says. Bible says in John chapter 12 verse 6, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he could help himself with what was put into it. And the context of the verse is this, Mary had taken a pound of 
pure perfume of pure nard and had lavished it at the feet of Jesus. And Judas stands there, looks at that, and says, what a waste. That money could have been sold and given to the poor. And, Jesus, uh, and the word says, not because he cared for Jesus or for the poor, but because he could get his slimy hands on that cash. He didn't really care for Jesus. But Jesus does not share the same miserable attitude. It's a time to be lavish. Our, our, our worship needs to be lavish. Anything less than that is self-idolatry. Idolatry of self. You see, in, in corporate worship, when we come together, through our hearts and through our purses, we need to be liberal. Anything less is not worship. Anything less is not an indication of our gratitude for all that God has meant for us. We cannot be grateful if we say that thank you for giving all that to me and then just hold it to ourselves. The Satan had found a foothold in Judas, his love for money. And because he couldn't get his hands on 300 denarii, he was willing to sell for 30 silver, co silver coins. He was willing to sell his Lord for the price of a slave. But the question that I ask myself is, what's the price I put on my Lord? How, lo how low do we stoop? What's, you know, what's the price tag I put on Jesus? Sometimes uh, we buy, I'm thinking of this because I, I was wearing this new sweater. I'm wearing a new sweater, okay. So, <laughs> and uh, thank you. Nobody says I'm looking handsome, but I bought this new hat. Okay, I bought this new sweater. And while I was putting this on, this illustration came to my mind, and I thought it was just so apt. Imagine I walk around with a price tag and I walk around and says, hey, hey, that's a nice sweater. Yeah, thank you. I bought it from Nordstrom, Nordstrom or whatever that store is. It's supposed to be the high-end uh, uh, store. And you're like, wow, you bought it from there? But at the same time, my price tag is showing that I got it on a bargain hunt. I got it from Goodwill. And you look at that and say, wow, really? You bought it from there? Your price tag does not tell you that. What we say and what we do, the world is watching us. It says your price tag, what the price tag that you put on your Lord is obvious through your actions, through your priorities, through your choices. Don't say otherwise. The choices that we make. We were talking at home about, you know, sovereignty. We were talking about how come man was given a choice. Uh, probably man is the only one with a choice. I heard Rick Warren talk about this, and, and he, he asked one thing. He said, why is it that after salvation that we're not taken away to heaven? Why are we kept here for long? And then he goes on to answer his own question. He says, there are two things that you can do on earth which you cannot do in heaven. I said, wow, there are two things that you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven the two things, one is sin, and the second is evangelism. You don't have to evangelize anymore in heaven because, you know, you can't sin there. And the choice that we have is between the two. 
and that we would choose right. The attack that we put on our Lord. And so as we come down to the supplication of grace from 4 to 10, I want you to see that grace forms the bookends. The beginning and the end of verse 4 and verse 10, there's grace. That's grace. And in verse 4, the psalmist begins by asking forgiveness. He doesn't tell us why he's asking for forgiveness. He doesn't say whether he did not consider the poor or whether he had given so much to the poor that he, in his boast, he was saying, I gave so much to the poor. We don't know what it is. Whatever the reason, the psalmist is telling us when we come to the presence of the Lord, we come not to barter grace. Grace cannot be bartered. Grace is not based on what you've done. And you go and say, give me grace because I've done this. Grace is given to us freely. Grace is given to us freely. And so that is what we, we see as we stand before our Lord, that it needs to be grace. And then, and then he goes on to describe the two sets of people in his life, the enemies and the friends. His enemies who come to find out whether he's really going to die and his friend, really, who lifts up his heel to crush him. And that's, that's what brings us to probably the crux of this, of this psalm, that, uh, or what the psalm stands uh, in the minds of a lot of people in verse 9 and 10. But I want to spend a little time on, uh, on that verse and trying to understand from the, from the mind of David and how our Lord Jesus Christ applied it to himself and then draw lessons from that. You see, the word for my familiar friend is translated as man of my peace. Man of my peace. And uh, just to agree with the uh, Bible scholars, just for this moment, let's assume that David wrote this during the time when he was uh, betrayed by Ahithophel. And this is what it says in First Chronicles chapter 27 and verse 33. It says, The Ahithophel was king's counselor, and Hushai the archite was the king's companion. He, was, he is Ahithophel, the counselor, and, and um, uh, Hushai is the king's companion. You know, David thought he was a close friend, but for Ahithophel, probably he was just a professional counselor. I, I don't know what his response was, but David feels betrayed. And in verse 10, David says, let me repay them, raise me up that I may repay them. But I I think about this and ask this question, is David asking to repay with, uh, as a revenge, that he might take vengeance upon himself? I think not. You know why? Because verse 4 and verse 10 begins with grace. And having asked grace for himself and acknowledging that he needs grace, to imagine that he wants to take vengeance and revenge on himself may be a little far-fetched. And I want, to, I want to explain that further through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and his response to the betrayal so it becomes obvious to us. We were talking about our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw Judas was the betrayer. Judas is the disciple who is eating with Jesus but holding hands with the devil. 
eating with Jesus but holding hands with the devil. I don't know if we can say that to ourselves, but the meaning of Judas is, Judah, Judas is actually the Greek form of Judah, which means praise. His life wasn't living up to it. And, and, and so this New Testament Judah takes on the line of Judah in betrayal. But I want you to see the response of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, I want you to see the gentle Messiah, the gentle Messiah. In John chapter 13, as the scene unfolds of the upper room ministry, in, in the midst of the supper, he wakes up, he gets up, uh, takes off his outer garment, puts on the apron, he starts to wash the, the feet of his disciple, and he comes to wash the feet of Judas. And while he does that, there are two people, both who know what's going to happen next, Judas and the Lord. There's no protest from Judas. And there's no hesitation from Jesus. In fact, I want you to understand, in the years that, that Jesus, uh, Judas walked with Jesus, there was no indication that Jesus knew, though he knew that he did not indicate to them, to the rest of the disciples, that, hey, that's the man, I've got my eye on him. And I'll tell you why. Because John chapter 13 verse 29 says, in the middle when, when the Lord Jesus tells Judah, Judas, and he steps out in the dark, this is what it says. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that we should give something to the poor. The assumption that you give something to the poor would only be true if the habit is true, Right? Now, I want you to think about the occasion. In the middle of the feast, it's night. Judas gets up to leave, and the disciples are thinking either to get something for the feast or to give money to the poor. Well, that's intentional giving. I mean, that is something that should speak to our hearts because they didn't think of any other possibility. Jesus could have said, um, you know, I heal the poor. I give the woman back her son from the dead. I have fed thousands. I don't need to give money. I, I, I don't have much money. And that, too, that Judas is taking what little we have. He could have said all that, but that's not what he says. He was intentional even giving in his material. He gave of himself. And even... He gave of what little he had. The rich who had become poor. Then I want you to see, not that just, just the gentle Messiah, because there was no indication that this uh, Judas is going to be betrayed, but also I want you to see the grieving Messiah. Jesus informs the disciples, John chapter 13 and verse 19. He says, I'm telling you this before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I'm he. So Jesus is informing his disciples, saying that how are things going to pan out? And, he, and I want you to understand the anguish of his heart. In John chapter 13, verse 20, 21, it, it says this, that he is in anguish of heart, in his heart as he is about to say who the betrayer is going to be. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, Jesus 
was not in anguish because he was going to die because he came for that. He was not in anguish because he hated confrontation. He was no sissy. He actually confronted, confronted the, 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 the money changes in the, the, in the temple. He, he wasn't in anguish because he made a mistake in choosing Judas. He knew who he chose. I want you to read Matthew chapter 26 and 24 to capture the anguish. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to him, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We must note that Judas was not an unwilling accomplice in the betrayal. Judas was not created for the sole purpose of betraying the Lord Jesus. That is not what the Bible teaches. Judas was not even deceived. He willingly made the choice of betrayal. I think the anguish in the soul of our Lord is just this. The choice that we make that often betrays the Lord. His anguish for the lost soul of Judas. His anguish, he, he weeps at the grave of Lazarus. He is the one who wept over the city of Jerusalem of souls that make a choice apart from God. His heart still breaks as we read in Romans chapter 1 verse 21 which says, for although they knew God, they did not uh, honor him as God, nor they were they thankful in their hearts, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. The anguish in the Messiah's soul. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who is the solution to sin. And according to the scripture, on his way to the cross, he must be betrayed. But, but woe to him, it says, by whom that betrayal would come. And so when we think about Judas and about the so many who have walked with Jesus and yet now, are languishing in hell, every righteous heart would break. We read in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to 6, for it is impossible in the case that ones who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Betraying the one who they've known. I don't fully understand. I don't fully understand why God would have it this way. We should have been all destroyed. And yet in our choices, he continues to give us our choices. See, when we talk about he lifted up his heel, you must realize that that similar phrase appears for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, the first time that there is this promise of a Messiah. And again, 
as the devil, the picture we saw, he, that is what he wanted to do to the Messiah. He lifts up the heel to crush the Messiah as it were, but he could only bruise his heel. And in, and in, and in return, the Messiah returns the favor by, by crushing his head. That's the Messiah. And if I could paraphrase uh, what Joseph said in, in Genesis 50, it says, the betrayer meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that how God would take even those circumstances, those situations, and use it for his glory. The psalmist and the Lord, what they did is they trusted in the Lord to be the one who does, takes the vengeance. They trusted in the Lord, not taking on action on themselves. And as they trusted in the Lord, they can come down to the song from verse 11 to verse 13. See, that is how the psalm ends. With a song and a praise. With thanksgiving and knowing that once you trust the Lord, we would not be disappointed. Not just that, they were not disappointed. They were set in the presence of the Lord forever. We don't want to trust God with revenge or vengeance. You know why? Because we think God would be too soft on the person. Someone's hurt me, I want to hurt him. Or I want to hurt her. If I give it up to God, God might just be too soft. You know, Jonah, I knew you're going to forgive. Want to hold on to this corrosive acid in our own hands, but to learn to trust Him just like the Messiah and the Psalmist. And He takes each of these betrayals and uses it for His glory. He does that. So, what are, what, what are our takeaways? I, I quickly want to give you some five picks, quick picks, and tell you a short story, and end with it. Quick picks. We can expect betrayals in this life from our friends and our enemies. When faced with betrayals, turn to the Lord, pleading in grace. Remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Don't try your hand at it. Don't go about life as a selfish victim. Don't make it all about yourself. Be generous in your liberality, Make it an outpouring of the gratitude of your heart. Haddon Robinson uh, shared the story in a different context, but I think it's applicable for us this morning. He talks about a man who went into a grocery store and he picks up a watermelon and asks the, the owner, how much is it? And the owner says, it's a dollar ten. And so this man fishes his hand into the pocket and he just has a dollar. He says, oh, I just have a dollar. And the man says, I'll trust you for it. So this man who walked in to buy the watermelon takes the watermelon, walks off, and the owner says, hey, where are you going? You didn't give me the dollar. And, and so the man says, I thought you were going to trust me for it. So the owner says, yeah, I'll trust you for the dime. We trust God for the dime, not for the whole. We want God we trust him for the little things of our life. But when it becomes a little bigger, when it's consequential to us, we don't want to trust him. We gamble God's integrity with our choices. And the psalmist is telling us that we will trust him. When people hurt you, don't hurt back. When they betray you, 
It's not for you to betray back, but to go to God in trust and see how David and the, and the Messiah were able to experience that this God is a God of integrity. And therefore, he, ends, uh, he, he says that in uh, verse 12, you upheld me because of my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. And that my trust would be that God will do all things beautiful and that, that I can trust him for everything and anything that I don't have to manage some areas of my life for myself. That he is altogether trustworthy. May his name be glorified. Father God, we want to thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that that if in our lives we have lived in ways that um, that reminds me of my grandmother, Lord, uh, where when I'd fallen down and, and she would come and stomp the ground. Uh, and I would look at that and I'd be very happy because the ground got stomped on, the ground that gave me pain. And many times we act that way. As long as the other person gets hurt, my hurt is bearable. And you teach us, Lord, today that that is not so. That it is for us to trust you with our lives, with our responses, with our choices, that you would be the Lord of our lives. Thank you again, Lord, for showing us from your word. You're altogether uh, trustworthy. Help us, Lord, to now go live that. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name.